The human heart holds the key to life's meaning. Not in some cheesy, sentimental, hallmark greeting card way, but because God made us for himself and put eternity in our hearts, as the preacher said. The heart's restless longing is a clue to what alone will bring us peace. Today's passage from the gospel is about John's role in revealing the Messiah's identity and mission. And it is a remarkable passage for the message it contains and the question it elicits, whether it was heard 2,000 years ago or two minutes ago, forces its hearers to respond to the person of Jesus through an examination of our own heart's deepest longings. The whole purpose of John's ministry, we're told, is to prepare the way for the one who was to come, to reveal to Israel the identity and the mission of the Messiah. And this explains one phrase that John says that's a little bit, might have you scratching your heads. He says it twice in this passage. He says, I myself did not know him. And if you're a careful reader of scripture, you probably thought to yourself, I thought they were related. Aren't these two kinsfolk? Uh, so what he meant there was not that he, had, he didn't know this person that was a stranger. What he meant was he didn't know in, a, in advance the identity of the Messiah. He didn't know who it was going to be because God had given him a sign by which he was going to tell who the Messiah was. And you can tell that's what he means when, if you continue reading because he says, God sent me to baptize with water and he told me that the person on whom the Spirit descends and remains is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. In other words, is the Messiah. So John ends up seeing this sign at Jesus' baptism. He sees the Spirit descend and remain on Jesus, and he knows that this is the sign he's been waiting for. He knows what to do. He says, this is the one. And that encapsulates John's ministry. He was to identify the one who was to come. And what he did is not just point to Jesus, but he names him or identifies his mission as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That phrase, Lamb of God, is such a rich image in the scriptures, and it calls to mind many, many passages, but maybe three major ones in particular. The first is just the whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament, which was meant to deal with sin, which separates us from God. Um, you think about all the passages that talk about the unblemished lamb that was needed for sacrifice. The second is the story of Abraham and Isaac. You remember the story, Abraham and, is leading his son Isaac up for sacrifice on the Mount of Moriah. And there's this little dialogue that goes on between Abraham and his son. Isaac says to Abraham, I see that you have the wood and the fire, but where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham says, the Lord himself will provide a lamb. Probably more than he knew at that point, but it's a, rem it's rem a remarkable statement. And as the story continues, you know that's exactly what happens. The Lord stays Abraham's hand, and he looks up and he sees a lamb caught in a thicket, and the, a ram caught in a thicket, and that sheep becomes the substitute for Isaac, the sacrifice in, in Isaac's place. The last main uh, Old Testament story that we should have in the back of our minds is, of course, the story of the Exodus and the Passover lamb. 
If there was one story that defined the identity of the people of Israel more than any other, it was, of course, the story of the Exodus. And in that story, the night before the people are led out of bondage in Egypt, they sacrifice the Passover lamb. This is the institution of the feast of the Passover. And the blood of the Passover lamb is spread on the lintels of the doorposts. And it's made very clear in the the story that the Passover lamb dies in the place of the firstborn of of Israel. So we're told in the New Testament, Jesus is the true Passover lamb, our Paschal lamb. In fact, uh, every time we celebrate the Eucharist, we typically sing the fraction anthem at this service, but if we don't sing it, we say, Alleluia, Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. So we're meant to have, as we, as we think about the events of Jesus' life from this moment on in his ministry, we're meant to see these as the fulfillment of this whole Old Testament sacrificial system, of the story of Abraham and Isaac, that rich biblical story, and also as the beginning of a new and better exodus, which deals with an, an older and greater enemy, not Egypt, but sin and death. John also points to Jesus as the Messiah or anointed one. Uh, there are many, many Old Testament passages that speak of the coming age, the messianic age, as a time when God would pour out his spirit in a fresh way on his people. And this would be accomplished, we're told, through the ministry of the Messiah, who would in turn have the the spirit dwelling or abiding in him fully, completely. Um, That was contrary to the practice in the Old Testament. Typically, what would happen is God's spirit would rest on an individual for a particular calling, a particular vocation or task. So it might rest on a judge for a short period of, of time or on a prophet so that they could deliver the word to the people. In, uh, in Jesus' case, we're told that this is the one on whom the, the Spirit will rest and remain. So when John sees that, he says, we finally found the one, the Messiah. And what John's baptism, that baptism of water, what that signified, repentance and cleansing from sin, Jesus' baptism would actually affect through the Holy Spirit. So John sees all of these threads, these Old Testament threads, coming together in fulfillment in the person of Jesus. And he's excited because he sees all these threads coming together, but also because his ministry is done. He can retire now. And he does what in, the Old Test- what in this time period would almost never be done. He says to his disciples, go to that other rabbi. He sends them away. Um, John's disciples, you have to put yourself in their place. They've been hearing John talk over and over again about the one who is to come, the one who is greater than me, the one who's the thong of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. So they're hearing this over and over again. And then all of a sudden, it must have been electrifying, John says, that's the one. He's right over there. So you, can't, you, you have to imagine what that would, would have been like. So, of course, some of his disciples start to follow Jesus, and Jesus turns and looks at them, and he asks them, what do you want? Or as our translation says, what are you looking for? And you can imagine 
the deeper import of that question sinking in slowly with the disciples. What do you want? What do you really want? What is the point of all your activity, all your striving, all the labor that you labor with under the sun? What's the point of it all? What's the meaning? Why were you following John? Why are you now following me? Of course, the evangelist certainly wanted his readers to hear this question as addressed to us as well. What do you want? Now, the disciples, we know how the story ends, but the disciples at this point could have turned back. They didn't have to continue on with Jesus. They could have said to themselves, I'm happy with a quick glance, you know. I just wanted a closer look. I thought you were someone else, whatever the case may be. This is an ever-present danger in the Christian life. The reformer John Calvin said, we ought not to be satisfied with a mere passing look, for there are many who smell the gospel at a distance only, and thus allow Christ suddenly to disappear, and all that they have learned concerning him to pass away. It's remarkable. But the disciples, of course, respond in faith. And their indirect question, where are you staying, which sounds kind of awkward, is, is just a polite Middle Eastern way of saying, we want to go where you're going. We want to stay with you. It was basically inviting themselves over to Jesus's. So they come and they dwell or abide with Jesus. Now, John's gospel is very careful. They're all careful about the words they use, but John is in particular careful about the words he uses. And in this passage, we get that has to do with the calling of these disciples, two ideas and words that are associated with what it is to be a disciple, to abide and to follow. So in both, we hear these a couple times in this passage. They come and they abide or they dwell with Jesus, and, then, uh, and the disciples are following Jesus on the way. These two things be- become, they, they start to characterize what it is to be a follower of Jesus, someone who follows Jesus in his teaching in his uh, leading in their lives, and someone who abides with Jesus, who spends time nurturing that relationship, spends time with Jesus in scripture and prayer. And even though uh, Andrew is just beginning on this journey, he, is, he immediately wants to share this newfound faith with others. So he grabs his brother and he brings him to Jesus. And although that sounds, that may seem kind of bold at this point, This is actually a very natural response when we see in Jesus the light of the world. We want this light to be shed abroad. Again, Calvin said, Andrew has scarcely a spark, and yet by means of it, he enlightens his brother. It doesn't take much. It just takes pointing to the greater one, pointing to the light, a simple invitation, come and see. Well, Simon arrives, and Jesus looks at him, and it's hard to get this across, but it says that he, he, he focuses his attention on him. He sees him, and he knows him. He sees past his current character warts and blemishes to the beautiful person that he is in Christ, and he gives him a new name, a name that is supposed to encapsulate his character. It's actually a nickname. He calls him Rocky. A name that describes not who he is at present, but the person Jesus is calling him to be 
the person by God's grace he will one day be. Well, this morning, you and I have been invited into this story, taken up into this encounter with Jesus. We have heard the forerunner announce the message of salvation and point to Jesus as the Messiah and the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The one who comes even today, looking at each of us, calling each of us, asking each of us, what do you want? To those who lay aside all rival ambitions and follow this lamb who is also our shepherd, abiding in his teaching and in his love, he will give each of us a new name, a promise of the person by God's grace we will one day be.